You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bozno's Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmire, where it's already getting dark, and God, I hate the time change stuff. I'd rather get up in the dark and, and have a few more hours of daylight at the end of the day. Just me. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I forget how the joke goes that, you know, only a white man could think that they could make a blanket longer by by chopping off a piece of it and sewing it back on the other end. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yep. Uh, so uh, we got a lot to talk about today, um, but I always want to talk about what you want to talk about more than what I want to talk about because. You know, I've got my idea of what people want to hear, sort of, and I put some ideas out there when I promo the show on Facebook and all. Um, sometimes people have stuff on their mind that I didn't list. And so you can just give me a call at 646-721-9887 and just press one so we know you want to talk and you're not just calling in to listen. Uh, again, 646-721-9887. Just press one and let's Robin, who you just heard with the wah, 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 <laughs> know that you want to get in on the show as my call screener and producer, and she'll get you lined up and ready to go, and we'll get you on the show and talk about what you want to talk about, because that's more uh, interesting sometimes than what I want to talk about, especially seeing we're going to talk about COVID again. My God, I think I'm so tired of talking about COVID. Uh, you can know, I can I do it? Can I do it? Sure. And I'm not going to take this anymore. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, I am a Myers-Briggs. And then for those, you know, that aren't old enough to remember how popular Myers-Briggs testing was for a while, personality profiles of 16 different personalities that Myers-Briggs test out. I am an INTJ which is that classic engineering personality. And the I stands for introvert. I am a world champion social distancer. COVID's actually been great for me. (laughs) You know, it's like I have to stay at home. I don't have to actually see people. I am happy. You know, it's great. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of people that gets COVID's been really hard on. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing the spike is that fatigue for those people that thrive on interacting with other people. And uh, that's 
part of why we're seeing the spike. Another reason I think we're seeing the spike is the amount of testing has steadily been increasing in the U.S. and Oregon and Lane County. And one of the reasons it's been increasing is we've started using a lot of these quick tests. Well, these quick tests aren't like where, you know, that thing they put up your nose halfway into your brain um, and, and they have a very positive style test that takes a day or so to get results back. The quick test can actually have false positives. And it's been shown to have pretty regular false positives. Our University of Oregon football team knows about that because they had some a scare with a bunch of false positives a few uh, weeks back before their season started. And uh, so that's one of the concerns. You know, how much of this surge is false positives? That eh, probably some of it, not all of it. It's still a surge. I think statistically, you could still take out those false positives and we would still be seeing an increase in cases. And uh, I think a lot of that is just people are starting to let their guard down and, and, you know, just can't not interact. And then there's the secondary thing, which I noticed at the beginning of the show, that it's already getting dark. You know, people aren't getting sunshine, which means they aren't producing their own vitamin D. And if they're not supplementing, vitamin D is critical to your immune system. People's immune systems naturally degrade as winter starts. So you're getting this um, combination of COVID isolation fatigue from those folks that aren't introverts, but are actually extroverts probably, not the world champion social distancers like me. Um, so you got the COVID fatigue, you've got the decrease in sunlight and people moving indoors and the natural decrease in our immune systems that comes with that. And all those combinations are creating the surge. That all said, our governors decided to go into this two-week freeze, I consider it a lockdown. Um, and the question is, is how much science did she use in dis making some of those decisions? Because the restaurant and gym folks are furious that they're having to be the ones to close down when they're showing statistics that they're not the problem. They haven't been the, the, the spreaders. And when you think about the restaurant and gym folks, that's one of the things that keeps people at least a little bit engaged in a environment where it's being cleaned constantly. And particularly with restaurants where, you know, you get your own silverware that's come out of a commercial grade dishwasher. Um, you've got, you know, restaurant staff that even before COVID are required to, you know, hand wash and, and pass, um, you know, health inspections and everything else for cleanliness you're not sharing you know when you have a gathering in your home where you know you're sharing uh serving utensils and you're all touching the same serving spoon you're in a kitchen you know the people prepping the food may not necessarily have been trained in food handling like a restaurant worker um all those things you know when you close down the restaurant dining rooms you're asking for people to gather socially at home. 
Gyms are another place people are, you know, have a little bit of social interaction, take some of that pressure off that COVID fatigue. Yet there's such a small contributor. In fact, you know, I'm not aware personally of outbreaks related to gyms, although I've heard there have been a couple in, in this area. I haven't gotten the documentation on that yet. Uh, um, but there, you know, you think about it. Why close those two things down when when your concern, you know, and, and she even stated it, the big concern is these social gatherings. And then she puts an arbitrary limit of six people on there and two families, two separate families or households. I don't know. I can't remember how she put it. Um, that's going to be completely, you know, unenforceable limits. I don't know how she's going to do it. Uh, and at the same time, who's got the resources to enforce anything in people's homes? Lane County certainly doesn't. And we're hearing from law enforcement all over the state that they're not going to go out and try and ticket people for having gatherings. Um, you know, and if anything, first thing they're going to go to is education. And I really wonder, you know, the, the first person that gets arrested for violating the governor's executive orders is going to have a fantastic case in court against the governor because you cannot create new criminal laws with an executive order. That takes a legislation to create a crime and a, a law that, that, that designates something as a crime. That's a legislative function, not an executive function. So it's going to be really interesting if it ever gets to that point. But, you know, it even, you know, this whole idea of, a, you know, a sudden lockdown, she even included this thing about travel and a 14-day quarantine. And I don't think she thought that out very well because, you know, of course, Portland and Vancouver, Washington, Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, Washington are like a symbiotic relationship of people that cross commute over the river and change states on a daily basis. So they, you know, is it going to take them, you know, a year to get in a week's worth of work because they keep having to stop and quarantine after every day they go to work? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, I just, I don't get it. It didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't, it didn't, it was one size fits all for the entire state. She didn't consult all with local public health officials that I know of before she came out with her plan. She held meetings to, to tell us what the plan was going to be, but she didn't consult with us before developing the plan. And it just all goes back to that whole thing about the 50th anniversary of Exploding Whale Day. I didn't talk about it last week, but it's, you know, it's one of my favorite days of the year, partly because I've got the Florence Beach in my district where they actually blew the whale up 50 years ago. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Google, put in exploding whale video, and you'll find the video, you know, and it was a, I, I, the news guy that does the reporting is the best deadpan comedian I've ever known. <laughs> He reports it so straight, and you know he he knows he's presenting something that is just absolutely um, ridiculous. But beaches in Oregon at one point were considered a highway, 
and you weren't allowed to, a private property owner adjacent to the beach wasn't allowed to block people from moving north and south along the Pacific beaches because that was at one point the only way you could get north and south on the Oregon coast. There was no Highway 101. It was a main highway. So it actually got declared a state highway, and it's one of the reasons why all the beaches in Oregon are considered public property. There's only like one or two points in the whole state that are actually private, one of which is being sea lion caves because its ownership goes back so far. But there is no beach down below sea lion caves. It's all rocks, so kind of doesn't, you know, change the highway thing. But all the sandy beaches were considered a highway, so they ended up under the jurisdiction of ODOT, or Oregon Department of Transportation. So when this sperm whale washed up on the beach near Florence, ODOT was charged with, you know, doing something about it because it was starting to really stink and be a nuisance. Um, so some ODOT official who's, you know, name lives in infamy, uh, and, you know, they've interviewed him years later, and you can find some interviews with him on, on the Internet, too, decided that it would be a good idea to try and vaporize the whale with dynamite. And if you watch the video, the result of that well-intended government action by a government employee, you know, where he was trying to do something positive, getting rid of this stinking whale carcass on the beach, um, ended up, you know, basically blowing whale chunks hundreds of feet in the air, and it rained whale, you know, mist and blubber and chunks uh, down on the crowd that was gathered to watch the whale be blown up, <laughs> supposedly from a safe distance, which wasn't far enough back, apparently. And there was actually one car that had its roof caved in by a chunk of blubber that landed on it. Fortunately, no one was hurt. A lot of people stunk like hell after that, <laughs> but no one was hurt. But it's an example of government sometimes just doesn't think things through. Tended consequences of government actions that were well-meaning are quite often worse than if they just left the situation alone. And I kind of wonder if this two-week shutdown is going to be one of those cases. Because, you know, not only do we have this issue with travel, now we have the issue with how do I handle that as a Lane County Commissioner and with our employees through our administrator? Do we ban interstate travel by all of our employees over the Thanksgiving weekend? Can we actually tell them to do that? Uh, well, when you think about it, I think there's some constitutional rights under the U.S. Constitution where we cannot control interstate travel as a local government. Um, I think there's a lot of court cases about that in the past. Um, and I, I do believe we would be in big trouble if we tried to tell our employees they couldn't go over state line, which leads to the second thing is if we did tell them that and told them that they had to quarantine for 14 days in accordance with the government, the governor's executive order, we would be required to pay them for that 14 days because it would be a requirement of us on our employees. 
under our contracts with our unions and the fact that we also, you know, if our unions get that money, we'd have to give it to it to our non-union employees or we get, you know, nailed with a lawsuit over, pre- you know, preferential treatment. So we can't, you know, constitutionally, we can't tell our employees to travel. And we, if we did tell them they couldn't come back to work for 14 days, we'd have to pay them for that. So some employee, you know, that decides to go hunt elk in Idaho over the Thanksgiving weekend, socially distanced by himself or whatever. Um, if we try and enforce the governor's order, you know, that decision, personal decision by that employee would cost the taxpayers 14 days pay. You know, so uh, you get, you know, did she think this through? I wonder how the state employment employees are handling this. Be a, be a great question for somebody at KEZI, you know, or K2 up in Portland to get a hold of the director of ODOT or some other state agency and say, are you guys banning interstate travel for your employees? And if they do travel out of state, are you requiring them to quarantine for 14 days? And then are you paying them for that because they made that personal decision to travel out of state? Be a great line of questioning. And, you know, I think the governor realizes how damaging her shutdown is because she suddenly let the counties know on Friday without a lot of preparation for us. And this is, and we've been pounding the governor since she got the CARES Act COVID relief funds back in April and May that she didn't distribute down to local governments that she held on to, that she needed to get that to us because it had this timeline to be spent by the end of the year. Well, she suddenly announced Friday that she's issuing $55 million out to the counties to help businesses hurt by her shutdown, basically. And she told the businesses to contact the counties. So we already have our phones ringing off the hooks with businesses that want to get their share of that 55 million, which when it gets down to to uh, Lane County, it's going to be somewhere over 4 million. You know, our percentage based on population, I'm not quite sure how it's being distributed. And uh, so now all of a sudden we, we're going to be charged with setting up and distributing $4 million in business aid that we had no idea we were going to do until Friday. Um, and Yet she could have made that decision back in April or May. And it could have been done with a lot of thought and, and, and you know, set a system in place and made sure it's fair and all that stuff. Now it's going to be done willy-nilly, trying to get the money in people's hands before the end of the year so we were eligible under the federal law to distribute that money. You know, so not thinking through the travel ban, suddenly trying to, to um, you know, get some kind of mitigation to what she's doing to businesses. I mean, there are a lot of restaurants that are teetering on the edge that haven't been making money under the COVID restrictions of, you know, cutting down, you know, their, their number of people that can be in the restaurant, you know, basically for quite a while going to carry out only. Now they're back to carry out only again. Um, I don't know if $4 million is going to go very far. You know, between you know the 
the travel industry and the restaurant industry, the gyms and everybody else is getting, you know, at least she left hair salons alone this time. I guess maybe she learned her lesson from the, you know, the woman in Salem becoming a, a folk hero across the country for defying her ban and reopening. Um, but, you know, who knows? That may come tomorrow. <laughs> but it just it amazes me how unthought out, how how little collaboration was done prior to issuing this. And just, you know, this whole thing with the CARES Act funding and the way she's hung on to it, hoping that maybe the state could make use of it, uh, has been so misguided. And, and I, I, I want to just put a little of this in perspective. To date, the death toll in Oregon from COVID-19, or should I say, the number of deaths while tested positive for COVID-19, because I, I still question, you know, sometimes somebody will test positive, die within a few days of testing positive, and be declared a COVID death. And we still haven't seen, you know, particularly there was one that was a 30-some-year-old here in Lane County recently. I kind of wonder if there wasn't something else going on. <laughs> um, it's just not that high mortality disease in a lot of ways. And I wonder, but 778 deaths to date. And it's been, yeah, this all got kind of going in February. So here it is November. So we're, you know, pretty darn close to, to 10 months uh, done. That's almost a full year, but not quite. In 2018, which is the last year I have good statistics for, the state of Oregon experienced 489 traffic deaths. So we're not even double the traffic deaths yet. We experienced 573 flu and pneumonia deaths. 778 COVID deaths, 573 flu and pneumonia. It's more, but it's not, you know, multiple times more. There were 530 drug overdoses in 2018. There were 844 suicide deaths in Oregon in 2018. That's more than the 778, although we'll probably surpass that by the time we get a full year of COVID under our belt. But there are over 2,000 accidental deaths in Oregon that year, including those 489 traffic deaths. You know, people still drive cars. People still use ladders. You know, I, I, it just, you know, put that a little bit in perspective. And, and to put this in even more perspective, when you think about the state of Oregon versus the rest of America by state, including Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., and we have the sixth lowest case count per 100,000 of any jurisdiction, 50 states plus Puerto Rico and D.C. Puerto Rico is catching up to us, though. We're almost getting ready to be number, you know, the fifth lowest instead of the sixth. With a whole 1,389 cases per 100,000. Now, mind you, the number one 
state per 100,000 right now is, is North Dakota at 8,656 cases per 100,000. If you wonder about some of the states that have the highest death rate per 100,000, then you're looking more like at New York and New Jersey. New Jersey's got the highest at 187 deaths per 100,000, New York at 176, Massachusetts 150. But you'd have to drop all the way down to the fifth lowest for Oregon at 18 deaths per 100,000. Then you say, well, you know, the U.S. has done such a terrible job with COVID, you know, comparing this to the rest of the U.S. isn't a very great comparison. Well, you know, the U.S. really hasn't done that terrible. When you look at per million, the U.S. is around 754. We're not number one. Number one's Belgium at 1,292. They're, you know, we're, we're down at number... 12, I think, uh, of countries. But then you got to kind of wonder about reporting. Because if you scroll down the list, you know, the U.S. has had that 200, almost 250,000 cases in a population of 328 million. China right now, you know, is only re reporting, sorry, was that cases or, or deaths? Sorry. I'm, might have said that wrong. Confirmed deaths of almost 250,000, 247,000 for a population of 300 million. So, but China with a population of 1.4 billion is only reporting 4,700 deaths. You kind of got to wonder if there's just a little bit of underreporting by some countries out there. <laughs> You know, the country where the disease originated is telling us that they only had 4,700 people die of that disease out of a population of 1.4 billion. Now, either the U.S. is way over-reporting their COVID deaths, you know, or China is way under-reporting theirs. So, you know, got to put all this COVID stuff a little bit in perspective. Yes, it's a dangerous disease for those that are over 65 and for those that have certain pre-existing conditions. And those people need to be protected. But we have to realize some of the damage that's being done other than that. You know, the number of suicides is outpacing our regular amount. Now, I told you our tip, you know, back in 2018, it was over 800 suicide deaths in the state. If we're outpacing that, we're actually having a higher death count from suicide in this state than we are from COVID. So, which, you know, is, is the, the government reaction to COVID causing, you know, that higher death count? It could be. And, and what other deaths? Our drug overdose rate is outpacing that 2018 number by quite a bit. 
Now, what's going to be really interesting is to see if our flu and pneumonia numbers actually go down because everything we're doing to prevent COVID spread prevents influenza from spreading. And a lot of the people that would normally die of influenza, the elderly, may have already succumbed to COVID or be counted as a COVID death instead of a flu and pneumonia death. It'll be really interesting to look back in another year or two when all the death certificates, you know, certificates have been reconciled and all that. It takes almost two years to get, to get good annual uh, mortality information and really see if there was an increase in fatalities in the state. So, um, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what really was the results of some of the government actions to control COVID. Was it another exploding whale? We'll know maybe in a couple years. I kind of think the lockdown's gonna gonna go down as an exploding whale moment for Governor Brown just because it's been so poorly conceived and so not very based in science. It's just, it's fascinating to me how little ties back to science there are to the regulations she's proposed. But that's, you know, our, our COVID moment for, for the Bose nose show. I just, I, it, it's, Difficult for me to believe that, you know, we can do so little communication with the people that are actually going to have to deal with some of these things at the local level. You know, the, the state has very few people that are actually on the ground dealing with us. It's county boards of health that are doing it in our public health departments. Um, and, you know, she throws this 55 million down to the counties and says, here, you know, un, here, here's here's money. You have to distribute it. I don't think she handed us any money for staff with that. You know, and basically said businesses call your county. So now our phones are ringing off the hook. You know, it just amazes me uh, that we can you know, be this far into a crisis and still not talk to the local governments. I mean, overlooking the local governments back when the, the COVID relief funds came in, you know, you think she would have heard enough about that back, you know, over the couple months after that, that she wouldn't, you know, move ahead again without talking to us. So it's going to be going to be interesting to see how our, our two-week shutdown works. You know, basically, she wants to cancel all Thanksgiving celebrations um, for everybody. I know that, um, you know, local wineries that uh, depend heavily on the Thanksgiving weekend for tasting room traffic uh, to order cases of wine of upcoming, you know, they'll do barrel tastings, and et cetera, to sell upcoming uh, vintages and uh, that's their highest traffic volume of the years the Thanksgiving weekend she just shut that down you know so it, it's 
going to be hard on the wine industry. Uh, it's going to be hard on our restaurant industry, on our gym uh, and fitness industry. Um, you know, the lack of travel is going to hurt our hotel industry and some other industries. Just wonder if it was truly necessary, if we couldn't have done more on the education side and hoping that, you know, people would start seeing the surge and, and responding to it. And the thing is, even the the communication around it has been, you know, that we're going into this, we're going backwards and all that stuff. Well, for the people that really aren't paying real close attention and listening to the news reports to that have the details about what's getting closed down, Monday, knowing that supposedly the freeze starts on Wednesday, I made the mistake of pulling into Costco's parking lot because my wife needed to pick up a prescription that was ready there. And oh my God, at 10, 15 in the morning, the line to just get through the door of Costco went all the way down the Costco building, past the tire center, all the way down, wrapped around the building to where the gas station is. For those that know about the Costco here in on uh, Chad Drive here off of Coburg Road, there was no way I was going to stand in that line to pick up one prescription. Insanity. And then I was hearing from people later on and seeing on Facebook that toilet paper's gone on the shelves again. Because for some, yeah, there was such a poor job of communicating out that grocery stores were not going to be affected. It, it, here we are again. We're back to hoarding and everybody's buying up toilet paper, paper towels, and cleaning supplies. Off, They're flying off the shelves. Even though some grocery stores threw a limit of one per customer on there, they're still running out. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. And how many cases are going to be tied to the fact that all those people were standing around in line and all those people crowded into Costco's and everything else before the actual, you know, rules went into effect that limited the store capacities to 75%. They weren't closing them, but were limited the capacity. Um, you know, it's just, you know, masked or not, that's still a whole lot of people that went to the same place, you know. And we're touching a lot of the same surfaces. So thank you, Governor Brown, for creating that little crisis here locally in Lane County where you cannot get toilet paper right now. So, yeah, it's just one of those exploding whale moments in government. You know, we've now caused a toilet paper shortage because we're trying to control an infectious disease. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And we're trying to control that infectious disease by shutting down businesses that haven't been spreading it. Maybe we'll move to some other topics on the Bo's Nose Show, but I want to remind folks that this is a call-in show, and if you want to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 stuff, if you disagree with me about, you know, the governor's, you know, lockdown being her exploding whale moment, um, give me a call, 646-721-9887. Just press one so we know you want to talk, because we do have people that call in just to listen. 
Again, it's 646-721-9887. Just press one and uh, that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bo's Nose Show. And uh, Can I add something real quick to that Well, on that topic? Sure. Um, looking at, this is from a government website, Oregon Health Authority with the numbers, similar to what you are reading off. And there's, and just refreshed, there's a little asterisk behind one of those numbers. And when you go down and read what the asterisk says, it says total cases include presumptive, presumptive, <laughs> presumptive and confirmed cases. Presumptive cases are without a positive diagnostic test who have COVID-19 like symptoms. Yeah, that they started including presumptive cases um, quite a while back, but generally the presumptive cases get confirmed with a test uh, later on. They don't get counted twice. Um, but that is, there probably were some presumptive cases counted that never got a positive test follow-up. Um, so yeah, it like I said, those false positives too are starting to add to the case count number. And, and that's one of the things that also um, is not well known is, is the mortality rate uh, by country. The U.S. is also in a good place there. Our mortality rate is down around, the, you know, of the cases diagnosed is about 2%. Yeah. And there's uh, they broke it down by race, too. So two races that are high risk, according to them, is white and other. Yeah. Yeah. Great government information sometimes. Yeah. Um, fascinating stuff. But, you know, it's just you know, here in Oregon, you know, we are doing so much better and there's so many other things that are out there that will kill you uh, at the same statistical rate as COVID. And we don't panic over that. We don't shut businesses down. We don't declare travel moratoriums and, and uh, you know, having to isolate for 14 days because we're concerned about, you know, uh, flu and pneumonia. You know, when's the last time you saw us be concerned about that? And that generally, you know, kills close to, you know, between five and 600 people a year in Oregon. And we're at 778 deaths in Oregon this year, you know, from COVID. It just, you know, seems like a lot of panic. Yes, there is the potential that if it starts spreading exponentially and we get really spike it up, we could overwhelm our medical systems, but we are not close to that in Oregon yet. And we, and we haven't come close. <clears throat> so uh, just the justification for the actions just doesn't seem to be there. And, and the consequences though, uh, in lost jobs and everything. Yeah, yeah, and then how long do you think it's gonna take for the folks that are getting relayed off for the second time from those restaurants that are having to close their dining rooms to get unemployment for these two weeks that she's shutting down? All right, you know, how many people still haven't gotten their unemployment from March and April? 
Yeah. And are waiting for that one week waiting period monies that they were supposed to get where they, you know, the state couldn't follow the federal mandate that they start paying unemployment immediately. Um, you know, which gets me to this whole thing of state and IT and gets me sort of into a little bit of our next topic that I just want people to think about a little bit. You know, our state couldn't handle a simple change in distributing unemployment of not having a one-week waiting period to go into immediate, um, immediately allowing people to receive unemployment. Not a very big change, and we couldn't handle that with our, our IT systems. And now we're finding out that our voter registration system in this state, according to the person that was the head of elections at the Secretary of State's office, who, by the way, was let go after revealing this publicly, but that voter registration system's written with software that is so old it's vulnerable to hacking. It's not, now, we're not talking about the vote counting system or the system of receiving votes. We're just talking about the ability to register to vote and to change people's registrations, to, to, to delete their registrations, to add people, you know, phantom people to that list has been hackable for years and the state has known it and they have not fixed it. I've always said the part of Oregon's vote by mail system that it is biggest vulnerability is its registration system. We have way low of a bar of registering to vote in this state. Basically, you sign a piece of paper that says, I understand I'm subject to a fine of up to $10,000 for falsifying any information on this registration. Yet, I know of no actions ever taken in this state to go after somebody for falsifying their registration. It is incredibly easy to register to vote in the state. You can present a utility bill to verify your address. You know, how easy is it for somebody with a computer to make up a fake utility bill nowadays? I mean, they make up fake websites from banks on the internet to try and get people to give away bank information. It, it, it's, you know, just not that hard. You know, and that's without even having to get in and try and break into the actual computer system that holds our voter registration information. And apparently that system is vulnerable to hacking. So not only is it too easy to register to vote, it's also easy just to hack the system and add voters anyway and get ballots mailed out. And once you, you know, can can put in a false voter registration somehow or another with, with a signature for somebody that's going to fill out that ballot, you know, then their signature is verified against that computer scan of the signature. Um, you know, you could basically have somebody with the same handwriting be registered hundreds of times and still have their ballot counted because they would match the signature hundreds of times if it was all done in their handwriting. 
that's the vulnerability in our vote by mail system. I mean, we do have a couple good things that go that we have going for us. One is we, you know, we do do that signature verification. Two is we don't go by postmarks. You have to actually make sure your ballot is physically in to the elections departments of your county, either in a ballot, you know, one of the, the official ballot boxes or the actual office by the end of the day on election day. That is something that Oregon's got going for it. And then it has the, the signature verification system. And they also verify that they've only got one ballot from each, each registered voter in their computerized re voter registration system that's subject to hacking. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there are some good things about our system, but there's some really bad things. And then there's the general thing about voting by mail is that there's no privacy in filling out your ballot. There's no guarantee of being able to walk into a booth, close a curtain, and your spouse has no idea who you're voting for. Father or whoever else lives in your household has no idea who you're voting for. But I guarantee you when all those ballots show up on the same day in the mailbox and dad decides to collect them up and, and says, we're going to sit down at the kitchen table and vote tonight. Do you think that's really voting privately? And do you think dad might be electioneering? Because, you know, there's this law that used to happen when we had, you know, when you actually went to a polling place in Oregon or any in a lot of states where you're not allowed to, you know, have signs or banners or promote a candidate within so many feet of a polling place because they don't want people to feel pressured. Do you think there's no electioneering that happens at the kitchen table? between a husband and a wife, between a, a, a daughter and a father maybe, between a son and a mom even, you know, where there might be undue influence on how somebody votes. That voting booth privacy is an important thing. Yes, Lane County offers the ability to come down and, and stand in a privacy booth at our elections office if you want to, but you have to be able to get your ballot and take it down there and do that privately. You know, it, it's not going to be too helpful if your husband's collected your ballot, you vote it, sign it, and he collects it up to turn it in. <laughs> kind of tough to go down and use a privacy booth at that time. Then you might, and if you ask for a, a provisional ballot, you know, and, and vote that, then that, you might end up having both ballots tossed uh, for having multiple ballots in the system. So it's just... There's some parts of a vote by mail that aren't always the greatest. But what you know really is interesting to me is the fact that we're now finding out the Sinclair voting machine system also was hackable. And that's not just the registration, that's the actual vote tally and counting systems that were hackable. And now we're starting to hear about batches of, of ballots that are being found. In fact, they found the third batch of ballots in Georgia today that seem to be tilted towards the president. So, it, you know, as people keep wanting to say, you know, the, the media declared a president-elect, um, that's not how we declare a president-elect. States have to certify winners. And it's not until they certify the winners and, and electors are declared from each state that we know what the electoral college is going to look like. And that has not happened yet. So 
folks that keep wanting to say, oh, the election's over, we've got a president-elect, um, I'm not so sure about that. And, and, I, and, I, and my biggest concern is, you know, after 2000, you know, and this is going back to Florida, a lot of people were starting to doubt the veracity of our election system. You know, dimpled chads and, and hanging chads and things like that. And, and, you know, then there was, you know, Dino Rossi's election where they had three recounts and they finally on the third recount found a bunch of ballots in some election worker's car in King County that tilted the election away from him. And then we had the 2016 election where a lot of folks felt like there was some kind of foreign influence on it, either through hacking or something. And people were doubting the veracity of that election. Now in 2020, you're seeing statistical anomalies. You're seeing where President Trump, you know, whether you support him or not, was doing better with certain minorities and urban areas than he did in 2016, except for four. And where, where, where are those four urban areas that he did worse than 2016? Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta. The four, you know, battleground states that are, that are so close to toss-ups right now. That sort of statistical anomaly is something that kind of, you know, doesn't really pass the smell test well. And on top of that, those were also jurisdictions that stopped counting ballots on election night for various reasons. A pipe bust in, in Fulton County. You know, uh, you know they, they had to give the election workers a rest in, in Philadelphia. You know, <laughs> there are all sorts of reasons. It seemed like for some reason, those four, you know, urban areas and the counties, you know, that surrounded them held up their vote counts and then buck the national trend, you know, and 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 were went worse for President Trump from 16 to 20, when the rest of the urban areas in the country did better for President Trump. Really makes you wonder. Along with the Sinclair voting system that was hackable, and. and just this whole idea of not having paper ballots to trace trace back and do recounts and ba- basing recounts on computerized systems. It just, you know, think about the state of Oregon and our unemployment system. I want our election system to be something we all can, you know, after the votes are counted and certified, everyone believes it was accurate. And fair. And right now in this country, we are going down a path where there's a larger and larger percentage of the country that believes our elections are not accurate or fair. And that's a very dangerous place to go. Mao Zedong said when you can get 20% of the people to believe that elections are being rigged or unfair, at that point, it's not if a revolution will happen, it's when the revolution will happen. It's extremely destabilizing 
to a society and a country that, you know, and there's a reason we form governments, you know, is, is to keep us all, all safe and, and to, you know, organize society. That whole basis is founded on the fact, you know, for um, a republic like ours on accurate and fair elections. So I don't care which side of the, the, the of the, the ledger you're on. There are enough people that going back to the 2000 election and moving down the calendar, they've gotten more and more disenchanted with our election system in this country. It has to be fixed. We have to get to the bottom of any accusations of fraud any accusations of inaccuracy, any accusations of counting votes that are that weren't legally cast, and fix it, because that's what's important. We have to have confidence in our elections in this country. And if 2020 points out anything, is we've got to work on that for the next election. And if that means going back to paper ballots, in-person voting with a photo ID. I gotta have a photo ID to get a book out at the library. We should be doing that. So there's my rant for the day on elections. <laughs> I have a question. Sure. So when, you, when you're talking about the St. Clair system, I, you mean they went from the Timex St. Clair to the Commodore 64? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And I think the state's still using those Commodore 64s in their unemployment department. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. Robin. And, well, and also I wanted to point out, too, that according to Facebook, any time that you mention anything po- political, it says that voter fraud is extremely rare. Yeah, well, I noticed that they tagged my post for the show today because I mentioned elections in the in the post with get election results here. Right. And of course, their election they're they're acting like the election results are official and they're not. Not a single state has certified their election yet. Yeah. But I guess so, if it, that they say it enough it must be true. Yeah, yeah. So, before we run out of time, as we only have about five minutes left in the program, I understand that you have a what were they thinking for today's show. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is going to be the what What are they thinking or the Drunken Architect Award, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, given to exclusive architects that you kind of wonder what are they thinking. Um, people that are familiar with the Eugene-Springfield area, more specifically the Beltline, uh, and we also are just live in Oregon. Know that I consider this the city of Atlantis for obvious wet reasons. Um, you would think that on <laughs> on the um, freeways they would have better drainage, and yet there's always one spot. Um, was it between Prairie, no River Road and Prairie, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, you take your boat. Yeah. Every year, that area floods. In fact, they've got permanent signs here that flip up that say high water ahead. You know? Yeah. 
And it's like, and it's not like that's a low point. Beltline at that point is elevated above the neighborhoods on either side. You know, it's built up on fill. Why in the hell can't they get it to drain? You know, they've got some kind of sump there that gets clogged up or something. It's like, oh, my God. Come on, Odot. You've had years to fix that. I'm an engineer, so it bugs me every time I see that and I go by. It's like you guys did a complete resurfacing on River Road uh, last year where they repaved, you know, I mean, uh, Beltline. And and it's beautiful through that section right now, the paving. It's like while you were doing that work, why didn't you fix the drains? I don't know what it is about that little low point in in Beltline and the way it way it's super elevated or something that they, they can't get it to drain out of there, but it's not lower than the ground around it. I mean if you if you as you go through that area you look left or right, you know, and, and you can see that the neighborhood on the south side's lower than Beltline Road. So there's some place to take the water. Why can't they figure out how to get it there? What were they thinking? What drunken architect designed that in the first place? <laughs> Exactly. It's one that just doesn't can't figure out angles. When I first moved, you know, I most of my engineering work was doing drainage work. And on the East Coast, we deal with some really heavy rainfall events. I mean, this is nothing. You know, you guys talk about a big rainfall when they get an inch of rain in a single 24-hour period. Oh my God, we get an inch of rain in less than five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It was you know, incredibly intense downfalls, you know, downpours, you know, and and you had to get those off the road and into the storm drains, and you know not cause big ponding and hydroplaning because people drive like bats out of hell on the east coast, um, and people don't know how to drive here on the west coast, but that's beside the point. Uh, they, but when I got here and saw that they, you know, here you are in a climate known for rain, and they. St- still didn't design roads well that had drainage issues. It's like, oh, my God. (laughs) What drunken architects, what were they thinking at the time they built Beltline right through that section between Prairie and and River Road? Everyone that lives in that area knows exactly the place we're talking about. Yeah. Probably has a big puddle there right now. (laughs) Yep. And... uh, (laughs) Yeah, we're probably having to, you know, slow down for it. And, and it, when you're going eastbound, it's in the, in the, you know, the 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 hundred dollar lane there, the left lane. So it's in the lane where people are going fast and suddenly have to slam on brakes or hydroplane through it. Um, you know, it may it in both directions. It's that way. Actually, going westbound, it's in the left lane too, right there in the median. It's like, oh my gosh, why couldn't they figure that out? Well, something that came to mind this morning as I was, I knew it was coming and uh, <clears throat> backed off from the vehicle in the left lane so I didn't get a bath. Um, it made me wonder about these self-driving cars, how they would handle a hydroplane situation. Good question. Yeah. Uh, or even just, like you said, people nowadays. I mean, it's amazing how many people I've talked to that I've asked, what do you do if you're in a skid? Yeah. And usually it's panic first yeah stomp on the brakes <laughs> don't do anything after you've rolled over three times then 
pray that you can walk away and go, what just happened? Yeah. Yep. See, unlike, you know, where I grew up playing around with, with um, lawnmower engines and putting them, you know, putting them on go-kart frames and all that stuff and driving go-karts around in the grass, you learn to turn into the skids. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. You used to do four-wheel drifts around corners in the grass on a go-kart because um, you could, you know, it was really hard to flip those things. Uh, yeah, you learn, you learn to drive. And, and kids, kids now, you know, it's surprising how many kids aren't even getting driver's license today. But that's a subject for a whole other Bo's Nose show because we are out of time, Robin. It just flies by. It does. Didn't get to talk about, you know, making sure that we uh, get the trees out of county properties upriver before the charred trees become worthless and the mills stop milling charred wood. Um, and uh, we end up having to pay people to take them down because they'll become hazard trees in the future. So we'll talk about that on the next Bo's Nose show. Uh, and I don't think we're going to have a show next week because it is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and I have to go take my COVID capsule up to Portland for service. Um, you know, just one of those things that, you know, I, I, I'm a normal person like everybody else and RVs are something you have to schedule service for. So I only time I could get it in was that day. So I'm going to be probably on the highway pulling a trailer in Thanksgiving weekend traffic. So even though I don't have a show, just know I'll be suffering. <laughs> Except there might be stayed, stay at home, so it'd be an easy trip. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, everybody's supposed to stay at home, but I, I, I'll believe that when I see it Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another edition of Bo's Nose Show. We'll be back in two weeks at our regular time. Have a great week. And have a happy Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm.